Hi, and welcome to episode 9 of the Essex Court Chambers 10 in 10 podcast series. Last week, we were due to bring you episode 8 concerning the FCA test case on business interruption insurance coverage in light of the COVID pandemic. However, on the day before we were due to record that session, the Supreme Court granted permission for an expedited appeal. So as you'll have seen, what we've decided to do is to put that off and bring that podcast to you, hopefully in the first part of next year, with the benefit of the Supreme Court decision. This week, we'll be discussing the case of Tullet Preben and BCG, which involved a large-scale attempted team move in the interdealer broker sector back in 2010-2011. I'm joined this week by Dan Oudkirk, QC, a leading specialist in employment law with extensive experience of large-scale team move litigation. He'll be discussing the case of Tullet Preben on his own, for reasons I need not bore you with. Now, Dan Oudkirk as I say, is a specialist in employment law. He is co-editor of Sweet and Maxwell's International Employment Disputes. The legal directories describe Dan as strategic, pragmatic, and technically exceptional, incredibly assured, thoughtful, and incredible fun to work with, and a true star of the restrictive covenant world. Dan, first of all, perhaps we could start by explaining what the case was about and why you've chosen to discuss this. Thank you, Stephen. So the Tullet Prebond litigation was uh, in many ways a landmark employee competition conspiracy claim. Uh, In fact, there's really been nothing on that scale either before or since. Um, And it was born out of a perfect storm. And at the same time, it provided the courts with the opportunity to map out the framework and principles which really have underpinned disputes in this area ever since. The conspiracy at the heart of that case was uh, ambitious. It involved a plan to unlawfully poach about 100 interdealer brokers. As part of the conspiracy, more than a dozen mobile phones and Blackberries were destroyed and disposed of in the Thames. And as an attendance note prepared by the solicitor who acted uh, for some of the brokers when they were being recruited, put it, the plan couldn't be put in writing because putting it in writing was too dangerous. The irony of that note, and indeed of much of the evidence in the case, was apparently lost on the author. Uh, But it was not lost on the trial judge uh, when it was disclosed at the end of a four-month trial. Colourful facts aside, uh, as I say, the case itself laid the legal foundation for these cases uh, going forward. It saw the grant of the first no-poach injunction which prohibited both lawful and unlawful recruitment for a year. It set out authoritatively the obligations of senior employees in financial services to protect their employer. And the court considered uh, what it described as a catalogue of illegal and dishonest conduct at a four-month expedited trial. So uh, there was much... Uh, both for the court and indeed for lawyers in this field to to grapple with. And at the end of the litigation, and I'll come on and describe the facts uh, in due course, but at the end of the litigation, the court concluded that the main defendant, BGC, had shown what it called a cynical disregard uh, for the law. There was then a one-month damages trial. And by the time the dust had settled on this litigation, the main protagonist had been banned by the FCA, and the broker's solicitor, Mr. Marshall, had been subject to regulatory sanction. 
Now, although there's been nothing really on the scale of the Tullet litigation before or since, the case still holds important lessons for poachers and gamekeepers and practitioners in this area. The Blackberries that disappeared in that case have now become iPhones. The text messages that were used to implement the conspiracy have been replaced now by WhatsApps. But poachers still almost inevitably leave footprints if you know where to look. Uh, And one of the enduring lessons of that case is the forensic exercise, which is an essential uh, part of this sort of litigation. So uh, I was going to begin, Stephen, by really looking at what the case was about and who the key players were. Thanks for that outline, Dan. Perhaps you could start by telling us the main facts of this case. Talit Prebon was a, a leading interdealer broker, then run by uh, Terry Smith, the fund manager. Interdealer brokers act as intermediaries between banks, trading financial products of varying complexity, and their businesses are traditionally arranged around desks of voice brokers. Each desk is run by a desk head. And depending on the desk, it may generate revenues of around 20 or 30 uh, million pounds per year. And the brokers on these desks are obviously central to the success of an IDB's and interdealer brokers business. They are jealously guarded in what is a very litigious area. And so IDB's use long contracts for their brokers, often three to five years. They use garden leave, they use restrictive covenants and various other armour-plated provisions, which are designed to ensure that a desk does not move en masse to a competitor. And at the time of this litigation, Tullet Preborn had around 650 brokers. The dispute centred around 100 brokers on half a dozen desks. Uh, Mr Smith's number two at the time was Mr Tony Verrier. And Mr Verrier uh, left Tullet Prebon shortly before the uh, events that gave rise to this case in acrimonious circumstances and went to join BGC. BGC is another IDB uh, and again has around or had at the time around 600 brokers. And the main actors on the BGC side uh, were Mr. Sean Lynn, then the president of BGC, and a solicitor who was paid by BGC to advise the the brokers it was looking to recruit, uh, called John Marshall. And he was, on the claimant's case, one of the conspirators. Now, at the risk of oversimplification, what BGC's plan was, was to sign up around 100 of these brokers using forward contracts. That's to say an employment contract which takes effect when the broker is free from their existing obligations. And the reason they're used in this sort of industry is because many of these brokers would have been tied into Tullet for two, three or four years. And so what the mechanism that BGC sought to use was to sign them up to a forward contract. As soon as they became free, they could then join BGC and indeed would be obliged to join BGC. Now, plainly, BGC wanted these brokers sooner rather than later, certainly not in two or three years time. So the second part of its plan was to walk the brokers out and to claim that 
they had been constructively dismissed. And its gamble was that it might have to pay some damages, but it would have obtained the very valuable brokers and desks that it needed for its business. Now, so far, so good for BGC. But as is so often the way in planning this sort of team move, three of the employees changed their minds about joining BGC. They became whistleblowers and they tipped off Tullet that there was this plan to walk out the brokers. Tullet then issued proceedings seeking an interim injunction to prevent any employees walking out. But before the application could be heard, the first tranche of brokers were in fact walked out by BGC. And so the stage was set for the interim hearing and then latterly the expedited trial. So the first step then, the interim hearing. Tullet sued uh, Mr Verrier, Mr Lynn and BGC in conspiracy uh, and it also sued the brokers who had walked out for breach of contract. And the key feature of the interim stage was that Tullet Preborn sought what was then a novel injunction to prevent further poaching by prohibiting lawful and unlawful recruitment. Now that's quite a powerful weapon if available. Um, it perhaps bears repeating you've got two competitors here each of whom employ about 600 brokers and they do regularly recruit from each other. And the injunction that Tullet was asking for would have prevented even lawful recruitment by BGC um, for many months, as it turned out, a year. And there was a real question as to whether such an injunction could, and if so, should be granted. In the end, the court concluded that in the exceptional circumstances of that case, um, BGC's conduct did show a cynical disregard for the law, and lawful recruitment should also be prohibited. It also made various disclosure orders and in the usual way ordered an expedited trial. Um, but there was nothing usual about the expedited trial in this case. Typically, of course, uh, an expedited trial takes place within three months, perhaps, perhaps less, uh, and lasts perhaps a week, perhaps two weeks, even a long one, perhaps four weeks. But this expedited trial, in fact, lasted nearly four months and indeed by the end of the trial and judgment, uh, 12 months had passed from the granting of the initial injunction. So what were the issues in play? Again, simplifying the main claims and the cross claims, um, Tullet Prebon brought a claim in conspiracy broadly alleging that Mr. Lin, Mr. Verrier and BGC had conspired together uh, to damage its business. Um, an unusual feature of the conspiracy claim here, though, was that it was alleged that there was both an unlawful means conspiracy and a conspiracy to injure. And indeed, as we'll see, um, Tullet won on both of those uh, conspiracy cases. There was also a claim for breach of contract and breach of fiduciary duty, in relation to desk heads, heads of those broking desks who had acted as recruiting sergeants. There was a further claim in relation to sign-on payments. Um, these sign-on payments were paid to the desk heads in order to encourage them to bring their desks. And it was said by Talit Prebon that they were paid as 
bribes or secret profits. There were claims for injunctions to enforce PTRs, post-termination restraints and garden leave. And there were claims in relation to the recruitment of loyalty payments uh, and an argument about whether those loyalty payments were a restraint of trade or a penalty. So it, it provided the court an opportunity to grapple with many of the issues which at the time were not settled. In addition to Tullet's claim, there were two other very interesting features of the litigation. The first was BGC's own counterclaim. BGC was determined to get on the front foot, and so it claimed that the three whistleblowers I mentioned earlier, the three whistleblowers who had signed forward contracts to join BGC but had changed their minds and decided that they would remain with Tullet Prebon, it alleged that they were in breach of contract. And so uh, BGC's case went. They had signed forward contracts undertaking to join it. They had breached those contracts by not joining it. BGC was entitled to millions of pounds of damages because they would have been uh, successful uh, brokers within its business. In addition, the defendant brokers i.e. the dozen or so brokers who had walked out to join BGC, contended that they had done so in circumstances where Tullet Prebon had repudiated their contracts. And this is a particularly interesting point which ended up being considered by the Court of Appeal. And their complaints, which were many, but their, their main complaint was that they'd been subjected to meetings where they'd been pressurised to stay at Tullet Prebon and they said that this was a repudiatory breach of the term of trust and confidence. And how did the court resolve those issues at trial? Before one gets into the, the issues, perhaps um, bears underscoring that, as is often the way in conspiracy cases, there were no smoking guns in the disclosure at the start of this case. Tullet's case was largely inferential at the start of trial. The evidential gap was filled in part by a detailed analysis of the defendant's telephone records. These were merged electronically to provide effectively a telephone directory and a picture of the pattern of communications between the defendants. So that's to say Tullet didn't know what was said on the calls, but rather like something from an episode of The Wire, could identify who had had contact with whom and on which day. Now that sort of exercise is perhaps more common now, it was rarer then, but provided a very, very useful foot in the door for Tullet. Because then what happened at trial was that the defendant's disclosure exercise proved to have been inadequate and disclosure came like confetti uh, during the course of the case. So much so that by the end of the four months, most of the core bundle consisted of late disclosure. And indeed, the disclosure exercise in that case was probably one of the, one of the key lessons that it teaches. So in the light of the evidence, how did the court then uh, resolve the claims themselves? Well, first, uh, let's look at Tullet Prebon's claims. The first claim, as I've said, or the principal claim, was a conspiracy case, unlawful means conspiracy and conspiracy to injure. 
frankly, it didn't really matter from Tarlet's point of view which one it got home on, but in fact, it got home on both. The court found there was an unlawful means conspiracy. The unlawful means was using desk heads and others uh, as recruiting sergeants. But it also found that there was a conspiracy to injure because Mr Verrier effectively wanted to get back at Tullet Prebot. So it found bad faith. The court also, in finding the conspiracy, made what proved to be quite an important finding that it was Mr Verrier's gambit to lose Blackberries whenever he thought they might contain inconvenient material. Um, and this was uh, a gambit that obviously didn't pay off, but it's right to say that around a dozen Blackberries uh, were, in inverted commas, lost by Mr Verrier at key points during the course of the recruitment operation, and it backfired badly. Um, it's a feature that one still sees in team move cases, missing phones, now iPhones, computers which have been destroyed. But what happened in the Tullet case, of course, is that there was still enough left behind to follow the trail. The second um, claim was breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, um, in particular by reason of desk heads acting as recruiting sergeants. And the judge found that they had acted as recruiting sergeants. Um, but I think usefully for practitioners in the field, the court set out in detail what the obligations of a senior employee in financial services is in those circumstances. That is to say, the duty of a desk head is to preserve the employment relationship of his team with his employer. He certainly cannot assist a competitor, that much is probably common sense, but equally, if he's aware that his team are looking to leave, it's his obligation to take steps to prevent that. And the, the passage where the judge deals with those obligations is, is now off-cited by employers uh, seeking to protect their business. The next question then the court had to address uh, was, should there be injunctive relief? And as to injunctive relief, it agreed that there should be. There are a couple of interesting points uh, that arose out of that. But the first is where you have a period of restrictive covenant relief and garden leave, how do you divide up the periods? If you've got six months of PTRs and 10 months of garden leave, how do you arrive at a 12-month period of relief? Should it be six months PTR and six months garden leave? Or is there some other mix? The court disagreed both with the way I put that case uh, for Tullet Prebon and with the way uh, Mr. Hockhauser, Queen's Council and others put it for the defendants. And although he agreed with us in the result, he found that the court could indeed cut up the restrictive covenant leave if it chose to do so. Um, and essentially, save in one case, he granted 12 months uh, relief in relation to the brokers keeping them out of the market. And he continued the no poach injunction that had been granted at the interim stage. One point of colour um, I should give you, which delighted those of us acting for the claimants, is that in fact, the trial judge that we drew for our trial was the same judge who had granted the interim injunction. And it is fair to say uh, 
the draw often matters in litigation, and that was undoubtedly a very good draw for the claimants. There were some other interesting points, as I've mentioned, that were decided along the way, recruitment of loyalty payments. Um, the case deals with those not being a restraint of trade or a penalty. That's a really, I won't spend time on it now, but that's a really interesting area. There are obviously other authorities and indeed subsequent authorities which do look at that issue again. And it's uh, an area where um, we will doubtless see developments uh, over the next decade. So that's um, what the judge did on Tullet's claims. What, what then did the judge do on the BGC claim? Well, on the BGC counterclaim, the judge found that Tullet had indeed induced the whistleblowing brokers uh, to breach the BGC forward contracts, or at least not to honour them. However, he found there was no breach in circumstances where the whistleblowers were entitled to treat the contracts as repudiated. And then on the defendant broker's case, the constructive dismissal claims, i.e. the defendant broker's case that they were entitled to walk out, the judge held that those claims failed and he emphasised that highly remunerated employees who put forward that sort of constructive dismissal claim to avoid their contractual obligations can expect to have those claims very carefully scrutinised by the courts. So the first instance judgment uh, followed a trial that lasted four months. That judgment was substantial and ran to 130 pages. Before the appeal came on, Dan, you took silk, I believe, and then there was a three or four day appeal in the Court of Appeal in the early part of 2011. What happened in the appeal? Uh, there were a raft of arguments on appeal, but most were abandoned. Uh, two really important points remained. First, the repudiation argument in relation to the employees' constructive dismissal claims. Now, put very simply, the broker defendants were saying pressure was put on us to leave. That was a breach of trust and confidence. And in those circumstances, we were entitled to treat our contracts as repudiated. The judge found that Tullet's intention in putting that pressure on was to persuade them to stay and that that was not treating the contract as repudiated. And the issue for the Court of Appeal was whether the court was entitled to have regard to Tullet's intention, given that the question is looked at objectively. Second question on appeal related to the whistleblowing brokers and the claim brought by BGC that they were in breach of their forward contracts. And this argument went as follows. The forward contracts themselves did not contain trust and confidence. They were just a contract. They were not an employment contract. And so in those circumstances, the whistleblowing brokers were not entitled to treat those contracts as having been breached. Those are the two issues for the Court of Appeal. How then did it resolve those issues? As to the first issue, uh, repudiation, uh, it dealt with that quite simply. Employment contracts, like any other contract, are repudiated when one party evinces an intention no longer to be bound. Yes, that intention is to be judged objectively, but that's in 
all of the circumstances as known to a reasonable observer. And where you're dealing with an employment relationship, the court is plainly entitled to look at the intention of the employer in judging what the objectively assessed intention is. Indeed, the Court of Appeal went further and said that that's of paramount importance. The court also said that, or also distinguished, the Malik and, and BCCI case. On the second issue, the role of attenuated trust and confidence uh, and breach of a forward contract, the court said first that there is trust and confidence in a forward contract. It is effectively a contract of employment. And secondly, that BGC's catalogue of illegal and dishonest conduct, as the Court of Appeal put it, uh, fully entitled someone in a regulated industry to decide that they didn't want to join BGC. And so they could treat the contract as repudiated. So um, the Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal and the stage was then set for what turned out to be rather unexciting one-month damages hearing, uh, which took place a couple of months later. Uh, on the last, that trial was heard mainly in camera because um, of the difficulties of dealing with the confidential information and a confidentiality club didn't of itself suffice. Uh, and in the event, it settled on, I think, the last day of the trial. And so, unfortunately, I, I can't tell you whether or not they were in fact secret profits or bribes or what the recovery was. There was then um, litigation in the US, both in the courts and in ephemera arbitration. And uh, the fallout, as I uh, foreshadowed when I started, was uh, an FCA prohibition notice against Mr. Verrier, his having found to be uh, uh, lying to the court, uh, and uh, SRA sanction against Mr. Marshall. So the litigation had significant consequences uh, for the defendants. And in many ways, uh, that is why it was a watershed case. Because in the aftermath of that, uh, in the market, there definitely seemed to be a reluctance to embark on that sort of ambitious poaching raid. It may well be that there is now enough water under the bridge to mean um, that we will again see that sort of poaching raid or a poaching raid on that sort of scale. And indeed, it's perhaps instructive to have in mind that the backcloth to the Tullet Freebon and BGC litigation was the financial services crisis of 2008 and 2009 and the unsettling effect that that had on teams of employees. And I think those practicing in, in, in this area at the moment will um, perhaps draw parallels with the current climate uh, and the unsettling nature of the current crisis on, on individuals within the workplace. So uh, whilst we haven't in recent years had anything quite on the scale of of Tullet Freebon and BGC. Um, I think it would be wrong to suggest that we won't see something like that again. A while back, Dan, you mentioned armour-plated clauses in employment contracts. 
to what extent did this particular case bring out the need for employers to gain further protections through clauses in contracts? Well, undoubtedly it did. And I think there are two, two clauses in particular that we have seen on the rise. The, the first is the clause that was then standard in the Tullet contract, but was not standard in most contracts of employment, which is an obligation to tell your employer if you are approached by a competitor. Now, that gives the employer the opportunity to persuade you to stay. It also gives them the heads up that other employees may be being approached. It's a very useful, practical clause for employers that 10 years ago was quite rare. Now it's very common. And indeed, I think one would probably almost expect to see it in a properly drafted uh, employment contract in the financial services area. The second sort of clause that we've seen on the rise, although the courts have yet to decide whether this one is enforceable, is effectively a team move clause. And that is a clause that restricts the employee to a greater extent if they move, whether lawfully or not, with one or more others from the same employer. And the idea is that if three of your employees leave from the same team to join another employer, they're subject to greater restrictions. And again, increasingly one is seeing team move clauses, but it's also right to say that at the moment, the courts have not had an opportunity to express a view as to whether such clauses are enforceable. And as regards so-called forward contracts in this context, have the courts yet opined on whether they are enforceable or legitimate as a matter of English law? So again, I mean, that's a, actually a particularly interesting and still unresolved point. So forward contracts are quite common. Uh, in this case, the judge found that the forward contracts were enforceable as a matter of principle. The Court of Appeal, however, uh, Lord Justice uh, Hooper, uh, expressed doubt about the lawfulness of forward contracts when used in this way. And in fact, uh, my recollection is that there was some protest about that uh, view being expressed in the judgment, but uh, the protest plainly fell on deaf ears because it's in Lord Justice Hooper's judgment. Um, now, the courts have not yet held that forward contracts are unlawful. There is plainly a question mark, and I suspect that the answer to the question will end up turning on the particular circumstances of the case, the drafting of the contract, whether it's being used with indemnities, and as I say, the, 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 the surrounding circumstances. Thank you, Dan, for discussing that case with us. It really does sound as though it was a leading case in the area of team moves and really made its mark on this particular sector. Next week, I'll be joined by David Joseph, QC, and Toby Landau, QC, to discuss the recent Supreme Court decision in Enker and Chubb. That, of course, concerns the grant of anti-suit injunctions uh, to restrain the pursuit of foreign proceedings in order to protect arbitration in London, and in particular, the vexed question of ascertaining the governing law of arbitration agreements. I'd like to thank everyone who assisted in the production of this podcast, including Catherine Ratcliffe, a junior member of Chambers, for her research on it. I am Stephen Hausman, your host for this podcast series, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.